Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's me, Cindy Howes. I host the podcast. Nice to have you here. Okay, so a couple things before we get into Kushana. There are a few ways you can stay in touch with Basic Folk. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter. Basicfolk.com is where you can find the sign up. Uh, That is also where you can make a contribution if you'd like to financially support this listener-supported podcast. If you give at least $5 a month or $60 for the entire year, you'll have access to Backstage, which is where our bonus episodes live, and you can find all that information at basicfolk.com slash donate. And you can follow us on social media, Basic Folk Pod. All right, let's talk about Kushana. Kushana is an artist with a literal mission statement. It is to be a voice and a vessel for those who feel lost, forgotten, silenced, and are hurting. She's found that having this tool at her disposal gives her work meaning, especially on those nights when she's felt like she hasn't sold enough tickets, merch, or gotten enough applause. If one person comes up to her and tells her they feel seen, she walks away feeling like she's done her work. That work also includes many years of being a music therapist with mental health patients, children, and those who are experiencing incarceration. Through music, she's found that everyone has a story to tell, and it is her honor and privilege to help them tell their stories. Growing up in South Carolina, she was surrounded by music thanks to her father and her grandfather's musical groups. She was classically trained on the piano and also the oboe, which she compares to a human voice. After receiving a music scholarship, she found her way to the field of music therapy and found so much purpose and meaning there. After graduating from the University of Georgia and working as a music therapist, she found her own way to her songwriting in order to keep a separation from her work. She's released several solo albums, most notably her 2020 album Listen, whose title track made waves in the Americana world. Recently, she's released three singles, leading us to highly anticipate her next full-length album. We'll take a listen to one of her new songs out loud, and then we'll get to our conversation with Kashana on Basic Folk. I know you've got the word. I hate to see Tired of watching your wheels turn It's like a bird that won't see I wish you'd say anything I think you know just what you want now Just too afraid to say it out Just what you want now You gotta say it out Krishana, I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you for agreeing to be on Basic Folk. Absolutely. Wouldn't be anywhere else. <laughs> um, you grew up in South Carolina. Is uh, How do you say the name of your hometown? Irmo. Irmo, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there were musicians in your family i read about your father and your grandfather and just generally how is music treated in the house growing up yeah so both my granddad and my dad play in gospel quartets my grandfather has passed on but um 
we found old photos of his gospel group um, from when they would tour around the Carolinas and do radio shows here and there. And my dad still plays in his gospel group back home in South Carolina. I think they're called uh, Brothers in Christ. Like growing up, my dad was always practicing guitar. Um, there was always music playing in some way. If it wasn't me playing guitar, like playing piano or oboe, then there was my dad playing records, you know, especially on the weekends when it was time to clean the house, you know. But <clears throat> I just heard him practicing the solo to uh, Lionel Richie's Hello over and over again. That's like what is ingrained. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the guitar experience I have growing up. That's the sound of my childhood is that guitar solo. <laughs> oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. uh, you're talking about that you played piano and oboe. You were classically trained. Mm -hmm. And I, I read that you've described oboe as sounding like a human voice that can pierce through the whole orchestra. So what first drew you to the oboe and how do you relate to its sound now? Man, the thing that... Okay, so what drew me to the oboe was my elementary school music teacher, Miss Ziegler. She, uh, when we were learning recorder, she would bring her oboe to class to kind of play along with us. And I was just like, what is this instrument Whoa. With, a, <laughs> with this little stick, you know, like, what is this thing? Yeah, and th yeah. then when it came time in the fifth grade to pick instruments, I saw that, you know, that was an option. So, you know, they try you out on different mouthpieces to see based on your physiology, like, your breath and like physically how you are, what instrument would be best for you. And my band director put me on clarinet and I pitched a fit because I was like, everybody plays clarinet. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be like everybody. Um, me trying to be an individual. I am an Enneagram four. Um, but <laughs> I think I just told him like, I don't want to play clarinet. I want to play the oboe. I wanted a challenge. And you know, from Mrs. Ziegler using that in this playful way with us as students. And then, when, you know, when we would go to orchestral concerts, seeing that like that instrument tunes the full orchestra, like kind of they're the center, like people must tune to them. But at the same time, the oboe sits out in, until like the very important moments are needed, like for the piercing solos to come through. If you think about yeah. Peter and the Wolf, like, you know, mm -hmm. the oboe and English horn play a big part in that um, in that composition. So I think I just love knowing that the oboe is an instrument that only comes through when it's necessary. Like you only hear its voice mm. when it's critically necessary in the music. Sorry, I'm also by a train station. Cool. Yeah. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I always found like the oboe player to be the chillest person yeah. in the orchestra. True, because they know how to wait patiently. <laughs> we know how to count measures and how to wait patiently for our moment to shine. <laughs> how did the way that you approached music in high school in the orchestra or in the marching band, which you recently posted a picture of yourself <laughs> in the marching bands. Yeah. You look awesome. Um, how did that or how does that approach still impact the musician you are today? Yeah, I think because I grew up playing in large ensembles and I was always I always had to listen to what was happening around me and I always had to make sure that I was in sync and um, in sync and in tune with those that were in the flute section or in the brass. And I was always aware of how my part interacted with theirs and how like we interplayed. I still do that to this day. Like that's how I think of playing in a band if I'm ever in a band setting, but most importantly with my vocal trio, this is how I treat it. I realize I'm using my old orchestral ears when it comes to like, even our phrasing, you know, it's, it's mm. different than singing in a choir. These are three voices that at times we want to sound like one. So getting our phrasing to, you know, link up when we decide to do a vibrato, how do we link that up? These are all things mm -hmm. I had to think about as an oboe player and as an instrumentalist. And even how when I'm when I'm um, arranging the background vocal parts for Nikki and Maureen, it's well, how can these all play around each other? How can this these different um, words that we're singing also kind of percussively interact and play with one another? 
Yeah, the trio, um, Maureen Murphy and Nikki Conley, that seems mm-hmm. like a really important factor to you in your sound. What do you like about the sound of three voices for your songs? I think what I love most about the vocal trio experience is that people can groove and dance and move to to like drums and bass, right? But with the vocal trio, this is me, I, honestly, I think calling in the audience to listen even more to the to the words that are being said, right? And mm-hmm. rather than focusing on the groove of the song, are you hearing the words? And I find that when you add a harmony to the words, people latch onto them even more. Um, mm. I, I think because what I'm writing is so important to me and so important to my mission, adding strong voices like Nikki and Maureen to mine and allowing them moments to shine. And it's, it's also test, a testament to the fact that my whole goal is to encourage people to use their voice to speak up for whatever is, is in their hearts, whatever they need, whatever they want, whatever they want to shine a light on, use your voice. So why not me demonstrate that by having two other women um, along with me and demonstrating what it's like when you share the spotlight with others, what it's like when you allow others to pop up and shine. I think it is kind of metaphorically what I want to encourage the people that hear my music to to want to do as well. Use their voices. So I want to know more about your relationship to your own voice. Do you not consider yourself a vocalist? No, not at all. Because <laughs> I grew up, as you hear, like I grew up for so many years in the band world, which I know many people... This, this gets me in trouble sometimes because people are like, your voice is your instrument. But for me, I think of myself as more of a storyteller because how I approach each song is what character am I? What character do I need to be for this? Um, Nikki Maureen would argue with me on this one like because of the <laughs> fact that I'm not one to throw down like riffs and vocal riffs. And it's funny because people will hear me sing and they always say like, I could tell you're holding back because they don't hear me doing the vocal runs and Cause I'm always like, did I enunciate the words? You know, that's, that's what's mm. important to me. Did I, did I enunciate the words so people heard the message? Um, and Nikki and Maureen are the ones that will add the beautiful oohs and ahs and extra trills and, and all of that mm. to the, to it all. But I don't, I don't, I consider myself more of a storyteller and mm. I use my voice in that way. How can I use my mm. voice softly or loudly to help tell the story of the song? So let's get back to um, your origin story. Um, You studied at the University of Georgia for classical music performance on the oboe, of course, and (laughs) music therapy. And you got, so it was cool to hear about how you found music therapy. You got a music scholarship, but you wanted to go into psychology. And someone from church suggested that you go for music therapy. So can you talk about discovering what this field was and why you felt it was right for you? Yeah, I think because the we found one music therapist in um, right outside my hometown in Columbia, South Carolina, and she was at the hospital by herself, the only music therapist on staff. Um, and she was working on the children's unit. And like my day of coming to observe her, she was literally going into hospital rooms and playing a guitar with kids that were receiving treatment and receiving care. And at that moment, I was just like, oh my gosh, I could do even more possibly um, as a music therapist than I could. Imagine the amount of people I could affect or touch through just music. And, Mm. you know, then you're doing double work. It's like, not only do I get to play music, I also get to teach music and use it in a therapeutic way. Um, especially when it comes to songwriting, that to me is more of the psychology part of it um, when it comes to talk therapy, you know? But I love the fact that with music therapy, it's also physiologically important to know. Like we had to take anatomy and understand every part of the body, muscle system, the skeletal system, the brain. We studied hertz and how certain wavelengths affect the body and how our brains react, what parts of our brains light up, you know? Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, maybe this is the ADD in me <laughs> wanting to know as much as I can and how many birds can I 
like hit with one stone, you know? The fact that music can do multiple things at the same time and also entertain, you know? Not only heal, but entertain. Not only affect the heart rate, but entertain. Not only help with someone's breathing or pain management, but also like give them an escape. Hmm. Uh, now is when you had to pick up that guitar that your dad gave you when you were a freshman in high school. Uh, you were 19 or 20 years old and you had to learn guitar as a music therapy major because I don't know how often you use the oboe in music therapy, but um, <laughs> it sounds like you had to learn a lot of songs on the guitar very quickly. So what did that style of learning on the guitar do to impact the way you play? Mm. Yeah, my freshman year of college, daddy had to get me a guitar for this one class. And we had to know jazz standards, folk standards. We had to know um, even soul, you know, Motown tunes. So I think that's definitely what has played into my um, style now is because you know, sometimes I would even be leading a whole group with a drum circle and a guitar. So there's this percussive element to my guitar playing that I've added because I remember the first Motown song I learned was Groovin'. You know, Groovin' on a Sunday afternoon. That was the first mm -hmm. one I learned. Uh, and I think because I just grew up hearing those songs, I wanted to hear the cha-cha, you know? So somehow... I guess it's this imitation thing I do with, with strumming and playing, but I wouldn't know how to go from a country one five kind of doom, 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 you know, in certain songs or how to play some of these jazz chords or how to do, you know, an old twenties, you know, Charleston <laughs> kind of melody, but it all, it all definitely helped my guitar playing, having to learn so many songs and styles and music for sure. Mm. Uh, as a music therapist, you started writing songs with patients, uh, students, and inmates, actually. So what is the idea behind writing a song as therapy? And for you, like, what was surprising about the way that you were impacted by this practice? Mm -hmm. So it started, I think, back in the day. I won't say how many years ago, but when I first started doing... <laughs> When I was first doing songwriting as a music therapist, it was more Mad Lib-like. So taking a song that already had a chorus that we could kind of repurpose to towards a mission or towards whatever we might have been talking about in our anger management classes, you know, with especially with inmates. Then it was just rewriting to the structure of the song. And then it was, I think I just came to the moment of like, why am I rewriting these? We could just do this ourselves, you know? I think it became a practice. I'm having to think back right now on how I got into this <laughs> world. But when it came to writing with those that were incarcerated at the moment, I remember this one band we had when I was working in Georgia at a, a mental hospital. The, there were these two young men who were fresh out of college and were poets and hip hop artists. And they would come to me with these poems that they had written they're like, Shana, can you add something to this? So I would just start playing, you know, a chord progression underneath them. And then it was just me honestly improvising and taking some words from their poetry and making that a chorus. And then after a while, I was like, oh, my God, we have we have our own song. And mm -hmm. the joy that I saw on their faces and like, yo, that's amazing. That was just words in a book, you know, at first that made me really see how. um mm, how impactful that was for those that we were writing original songs with. And it honestly became a way of writing a mantra. So now, yeah, sure, it's like songwriting. But to be honest, I think of what I'm doing now is therapeutic songwriting, um, mm. which is we will do a little talking in the beginning of like, what what are you struggling with? Or what's just going on? What's going on in the world for you right now? And then, you know, me finding the core of what it is that someone is dealing with. Mm -hmm. Is it like feeling unloved? Is it feeling, you know, fear about the next step, you know, in their, in their life cycle? What is the next step? Then how can we put the words that you're feeling into melody? And like, how can I support that? And a lot of times, like what I enjoy finding is when people realize that they have a song in them. They don't really mm. need me. All, all they need is me to play some chords and like give them one little push into the, you know, just give them a little nudge 
And before you know it, they're telling me how they want the phrasing to go or where they want the note to land. <laughs> and they might not know the musical terms, but they always they always end up fully writing and composing, you know, these melodies. And I'm, you know, I'm there to help them along. Um, mm. But it's grown from just, you know, mantra writing to full on. All right. We're all improvising and jumping into this well of the unknown together. When you write with someone in this capacity, you're listening intently and you've basically removed yourself from their situation and you're just there to be a reflection. That sounds pretty hard. So like what mm. has been your evolution as a listener? Have you always been a good listener? Oh, no. I had to be trained in it. <laughs> and I still struggle every day. <laughs> I still <laughs> struggle um, with listening we had to have, we took a class on listening in college, you know. Wait, the They're, listen lady has a hard time listening? Oh, yeah. This is why the song was written, too, you know. <laughs> yeah, the listen lady has a hard time. And and the song Listen is a reminder, even for me, that, you know, I tend to always venture towards wanting to help and give an answer mm. and mm. tell someone what's worked for me. I want to interject or cheerlead, but oftentimes when I'm thinking of what to say next, or if I'm thinking of an anecdote, like, have you tried this? Or, you know, what worked for me was like, I'm not hearing the person anymore because I was thinking of what I wanted to say. And we had to take a class in this in college of like sitting across from someone and reflecting their body language, like leaning in, sitting back, reading body language, reading like their eye contact. So a lot of what I do is reading people and I notice when I close my mouth and stop trying to interject my story or my experiences into theirs, when I just watch a person and listen to them, I'm being told, like, I get so much more out of that. And I still struggle with the whole giving advice because I do want to make people feel better. And I have to remind myself, like, a lot of times people just want to hear, I'm sorry you experienced that mm. or that that must be hard. And you know, we think everybody wants an answer, but in truth, sometimes they just want to be heard. I relate to that so mm -hmm. hard, Kashana, mm -hmm. in, in wanting to like fix and help. Why do you think people want a reflection versus a solution? And why do you think it's so hard to be a mirror? <sighs> well, why is it hard to be a mirror? I think it's hard to be a mirror for many of us because we exist in our own, we are the stars of our own films, right? We are. <laughs> so it's hard to be a mirror for someone else because then it takes the spotlight off of you for, you know, and not, mm. not, I don't mean that in an egotistical way, but yeah. we're so used to operating with people and interact with people and how do you relate to my story? Not how we relate to someone else's day, right? It's just how do they impact my day? What was the first part of the question you asked me? Why do people want a reflection versus a solution? Yeah. Now, some people want solutions, but I think when they want it, they'll ask. They'll ask, Help me yeah. figure this out, you know? But I do believe wanting a reflection is... I can speak for myself. I love it when someone reflects back to me the words that I've just said. Because that, to me, means you heard me, you know? And you truly heard me. And you're going to think on what it is that I've just stated is a problem of mine. When I have a reflection of me in front of me, then I also don't feel so alone, you know? Um, mm. I, I oftentimes am in spaces where I am the only, you know? I am the, mm -hmm. the only person. And many of us may look like others, but we still think we're the only people that struggle with depression or struggle with um, anxiety. But oftentimes when someone can reflect back to us, and be a reflection it's that feeling of like i'm not alone you hear me mm -hmm. and you're not trying to fix me you're not trying to fix me right now but you hear me mm. you actually have a mission statement as an artist and it is to be a voice and a vessel for those who feel lost forgotten silenced and are hurting what inspired you to come up with a mission and how has it helped you I think it was through a branding meeting <laughs> I, had, I had with a friend's husband. He does branding for people. And so in that branding meeting, he asked me, like, well, what's your mission? And then that blew my mind. So I, t I went back and sat with a bunch of artist friends and we all were like, 
just having a gathering, I was like, y'all, we need mission statements for ourselves. You know, we should. And, and it was like, a, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think my friend Jen Bostic is the one that kind of started the whole thing. And a crew of us all sat down and wrote missions for ourselves and found that when we did that, it took the weight of the shoulda, coulda, wouldas off of our shoulders. Or I wish I was more like this person or why isn't this working for me or why didn't because then you have a mission to look back at so if I walk off stage and I only got like three applauses but like or like nobody really like applauds and then everybody leaves not a lot of merch is sold if one person comes to me and says thank you I really needed that one song you sang about blah you know um, I've been struggling with this this and this and I feel like and I felt like I was finally heard then to me, that mission achieved. And that means that was a, su a successful night. That was a successful mm. show. And so it takes the whole self-judgment and like, what am I doing with my life thing? Uh, it makes it um, more, it makes it easier. Because I know that even if it was just one person out of 50, you know, that I held true to my mission that night. Hmm. I like that. So you've been writing your own songs um, since around 2010. You branched out from your um, writing with patients and started writing your own song as a uh, songs as a way of separation. So what was it like for you to start writing your own music? Ooh, um, scary. Mm. <laughs> um, and like I remember the first few songs I wrote, it was like I had no idea I had that in me is this even good? I wouldn't really play them for anybody. If I did, it was like an open mic, you know, it was very scary for me to start putting words to my own feelings. But then I found that I needed to do that. Even, you know, as a music therapist, I'm always receiving other people's stories. I'm always experiencing or like hearing about their traumas. And that has to go somewhere, you know? And I had a supervisor when I was working up here in New York she told me like that, you know, people weren't talking about self-care then, you know, in the early 2000s, self-care mm -hmm. was not part of the language and taking a break, uh, especially in mental health. That was not part of the language. But she told me that I needed to find an outlet. And she was like, if it needs to be a drum circle or a choir, you need some kind of outlet. And she was right. And I tried drum circles, but in the end, like I found that me writing was what I would just cry sometimes, just even just journaling before I started really writing the lyrics and melody. I found cathartic, like it was very cathartic for me to just process and write. And then the ability to use my voice and release a lot of that anxiety or like whatever the feelings I was holding on to from that week's traumas I had heard of. Mm. Um, the songwriting for me and the actual singing of it, even if it was just in my bedroom, that helped the weight kind of ease off of my shoulders a bit. Mm. Uh, even though you're on a mission to be a voice for others, how do you keep yourself in the songs? Like, how do you not lose yourself while serving others? Mm. All right. So there's something that we say before we walk on stage. Um, I used to do this even by myself of like, let's remember why we're here. It's going back to the mission, being a voice in a vessel, right? So I always ask that I, if there is something that I need to hear that night while in, in the midst of performing, I hope that I hear that. And if there is something that the audiences, the audience, if someone in the audience needs to hear a message, let me not get in the way. I don't want my ego to get in the way of someone else receiving the message. So that for me is just a reminder of like, this is not about you, Kishana. You know, I have to literally say that to myself. And I find the days that I don't address my ego and say, like, back up. This is not about you. This is not about the applause. This is not about the accolades. This is about the message that you were giving. So doing that helps me not get lost in the story and reminds me that, like, honestly, for me, once a song is written, it is no longer mine. It is ours. Mm. Right. So once I've written about the thing that has been traumatic for myself, I think it takes me a few times to get get it, get it out. And every now and then I'll tap back in and, and I'll get emotional on stage. But 
after that, it is not mine anymore, especially when I start mm-hmm. hearing other people's um, experiences. I have a song called My Own Grave that is about my experience with a, um, having a hysterectomy and being, you know, 42 years old, childless with no womb. And, and like it, when I wrote it, I cried for like, it took me a year to before I could perform it or share it with anyone, oh, wow. you know. But then once I played it out and I had other people come to me and say, wow, I also other women coming to me and saying how much they related to that that's when I was like and the song is no longer mine so this is Mm. not about me anymore you know this is not about me anymore this is something that can help others that have gone through or experienced something similar you have experienced your own personal pain and the pain of so many others in your work so how do you resist the urge to confront that pain with anger and how do you approach with love and forgiveness instead I think I still allow time for the anger, you know, there's a couple songs I have where they were written out of anger. We the People was written out of anger and frustration. Same Blood was written out of anger and frustration. So I think for me, putting it, again, putting voice to it helps me, has like helped me release it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so the moments where I can scream about like, you can't, put the bullet back in the gun, you know, in same mm-hmm. blood. I, I literally yell that I am no longer singing. This is why I don't call myself a vocalist. I'm not singing anymore. I'm yelling, you know, there are times for the anger to show through, but then I know that like, I always say this to the audiences. I know that we've yelled at you a little bit, but now we're going to bring you in and give you a little hug. Like, like your grandma would, you get fussed at and then come on, give me a hug, baby. Woo woo. <laughs> so that's how I think of it. Like we'll come, I'll come at them with the hard and angry or, uh, or frustrated songs, but then I'm always going to give you a little vocal hug afterwards, you know, with a, a gentle song, like out loud, mm. you know, where it is me whisper singing for most of it. You know, our song try off the listen record is another one of like, all right, now that we've yelled at you, we also know that you've been doing your best. And every that's all any of us can do is just try a little bit, you know? I've read you talking about how your classical training has kind of interfered with writing in terms of like wanting to be less rigid. So how have you Mm -hmm. learned to like let go of that instinct and be more loose around a melody? Oh, time and practice has allowed me to be a little bit more loose with melody. And I still do have moments of I'll allow myself to play. If we're having a really good show and Nikki and Maureen are on a, are on a roll, they even see it when it, ha- when it happens. When I just kind of let go and <laughs> I, I just kind of like start singing notes because I don't feel confident when I'm doing that. I find how fun that is. Like I, I feel how freeing it is and I still wish I could do it all the time. I watch the two of them do it every night we're performing and I am so envious of that skill. Um, and I honestly feel like it's just something I'm going to have to keep practicing at being less rigid. You know what helped me out though, when it comes to writing and not being so caught up in the one, you have to go from a, a two to a whatever, or you got to play a six chord now has been I've been tuning my guitar in the past few years in open, like an open tuning, just an open dad gad or in an open D minor because I no longer know what chords I'm playing. It's just what sounds feel good. That has freed me up from the rigidity of, of chord progressions and how they tell you, mm. especially when classically you learn what chords lead to what, right? Like what a typical chord progression should look like. But open tuning has really allowed me to just kind of play play with sound, play with melody, um, play with harmony, and all of that. So you've talked about how your presence in a room can be a socially conscious statement when you're often the minority in a room, um, and you have overcome the fear of sharing your pain and frustration through your songs. So can you talk about how you approach and then ultimately work through that fear. Yeah, I think it got to a point. I don't know if it was just getting older that helped me work through the fear of just telling my truth on stage. But I realized like nobody else is in the room. I'm the only one. Like, I think I know what it was. There was a day where I realized the privilege I have in this job, the privilege I have of being able to stand on a stage and speak on a microphone 
That is powerful. Think about the people who have microphones and how they abuse that sometimes, right? And so I was like, this is my opportunity to share a truth. It's, again, getting the ego out of the way. Kashana, you, you being scared is an ego thing. That is you and your ego. And me talking about the hard things in a room of people who may have no clue, which is often the situation. They don't know what it's like to walk through the world as a plus size black woman over the age of, you know, 40. And if I can be one that can shine a little light on what that experience is, and if I can also be the one to share a light on what the rooms I've walked into that many people will never get to walk into. Like how many people know what it's like to have bars closed behind you when you walk into a detention center? How many people know what the smell is when you walk into um, a mental hospital or a hospital room? What smells um, come to you? Like there's, there's this whole thing that only a few of us truly know what that experience is like. So if I have the microphone, it's time that, I mean, I have to share that. Um, I feel like that is my duty. If I'm being given the the ability to walk into spaces with a guitar on my back, then it is my duty to share what I have seen and to share what I have experienced. Just to shine a light and be that thread to connect the world of those that, hmm. the world world of those that have not to those that do. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, mm-hmm. I just want to be the thread to sh- between the worlds of that may never ever mesh and merge together. Sounds like you're being a vessel. Mm. Like the mission statement. Ayo. <laughs> <laughs> You've gone into how carrying a guitar in your back changes the way that people treat you. When did you notice that happening and how did you break it down in your mind? Um, and then like how do you use that aspect of the guitar? Is it like protection or perception? That is a heavy behind question. I think the first time, all right, where I first noticed the power that the guitar had is, so going from being a music therapist in the school system, where you're bound by rules, you're bound by um, guidelines, you know, strict policies, and things I could or could not talk to the kids about, right? But then when I just come in as an artist with a guitar on my back, there's no one there that I have to answer to. Like nobody's telling me what policies I have to abide by. Nobody's telling me what's not allowed to speak to the kids. They know that I am there as an artist and they know what my music is about. Therefore, in my mind, it is safe to me for me to talk to these kids about, you know, if they want to talk about social justice, okay, I'm here. So I can talk about social justice issues with kids as an artist, where as a music teacher or music therapist in the school setting might not have been allowed. You know, where Mm -hmm. even when it comes to me, when I used to work in in, um, detention centers with those that were experiencing incarceration, as a therapist, as a music therapist, I was bound by time. I was bound by, you know, I had to have strong boundaries, which you still need to have. Right. There were there was a team I had to be in sync with, which was great. But I've noticed As an artist coming in with a guitar on my back, something about just telling people I'm there to do therapeutic songwriting. It's almost like the doors fly open. They're like, come on in, write whatever you want, you know, (laughs) where I I had to be mindful of that at times. You know, I had because I knew everyone's backstory. So with me not knowing everyone's traumatic backstory, that kind of that has honestly freed me up um, as an artist being able to walk into spaces with a guitar on my back and in airports, I find people look at me different when I'm walking about with a guitar on my back, how I'm viewed um, in public in spaces that are like right now we're in a town that is, I mean, I've, as I've been sitting here in the car, I've seen nothing but white folks walk by. Right. And mm-hmm. noticing mm-hmm. when I'm everybody's kind, but, you know, you just notice people looking like, no, we don't know her. We, we don't have that many people of color around here. I wonder where she's from. But when you put a guitar on your back, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my goodness. It's like people want to approach you where without a guitar on my back, people stay away. So I feel a bit more approachable at times. People are more open to conversation and asking questions. 
and I'm allowed into spaces to bring up subjects that might be tough for many. Hmm. I also want to hear more about the expectation that people might have for you to be the quote unquote oracle. Um, yeah. oh, like, yeah. do you feel do you feel the need to like crush that expectation when you sense it? <laughs> yes, but I'm also I grew up in the South, so I'm also a very kind Southern woman uh, who will just yes, ma'am, <laughs> no, ma'am, oh, I don't know, and then I know how to politely get out of situations like that. It is hard when people tell me things like, what's the thing? You're doing the Lord's work, you know, Um, or I'm like, look, all I'm doing is what feels good in my body. All I'm doing is what I know I feel the pressure to do because of the gifts I've given, I've been given. So I do feel some kind of way. I think one way of me releasing from that feeling of people wanting to see me as an oracle is like my mission. This is my purpose. And I just don't let my ego um, feed into that. You know, I'm just a human person out here mm. making mistakes. I speak one language on stage, but when I get off, I'm out here cussing out people in the car. And you know what I mean? Like in traffic, just <laughs> mad as can be. We, we Palo Santo, I wish I could show you the stage in Palo Santo we have in the front seat. You know, like the three of us speak this language of peace and love and acceptance. But then, like I said, we will... Like we have to honestly take deep breaths together a lot because it is hard work to live in that headspace of peace and love all the time. It yeah. It's work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's not like mm-hmm. I'm out here living this holier, holier than thou world at all. It is hard work. And, it, and, there, and it's also unobtainable. Yes, it is. It is perfection, unobtainable. Perfection is unattainable. Exactly. And and we have to yesterday we had a really rough day. We got in the car like all ready for our daily journey. Right. It was we always say a little prayer before we start driving of just like give us peace and um, protection on the road, you know, keep us alert. And then not 20 minutes into our drive. We almost got hit. Maureen almost hit somebody. This other thing happened. It was like we had to pull over and be like, okay, okay, we see. That was a lesson in patience. (laughs) Okay. But realizing like when you ask for certain things, like you're going to have to really work for it. And this is hard work, you know? So Mm -hmm. I'm human. That's it. Not an oracle, just human. Your album Listen came out in January of 2020 in the before times. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. During the pandemic, you had to let go of a lot of dreams and plans like many people did. However, you discovered something amazing about how you want to tour. And you said, I want to make sure I'm showing up in a town that I don't forget. I want to make sure that I'm putting roots down, like who does the venue want to partner with? Then I'll go into a songwriting course with them the day before. So basically, you're making sure that you're doing songwriting workshops in the communities that you're playing in. Does that Mm -hmm. sound right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about what that was like to make that discovery for yourself and how has this uh, process of touring like this worked out so far? Yeah. So during during pandemic, um, you know, we being pulled off the road, I didn't I no longer had the audiences to help me feel connected to my mission anymore. So what was a way for me to continue to be a voice and a vessel for those who feel lost, forgotten, silenced, or who, or, or who are hurting? And what I found was when I reached out to my audience and said, hey, anybody out there struggling, I can help you write. You know, it started there with just my, my audience saying, I would love a therapeutic songwriting session with you. And then it grew to, hey, Kashana, we heard you doing this thing. Would you teach this summer camp to these youth? Yeah. Hey, Kashana, would you do this other group? And it just kind of snowballed and grew. And then it became this idea of like, wait a minute, I could slow down on the road. Because a lot of this touring thing is just like town after town. Last night, we were like, where are we? We've only been out here for two days. We don't know what town we're in in the Northeast, you know. But I know, like coming up in Huntington, uh, West Virginia, we have a songwriting workshop before our show with Shovels and Rope. And what, for me, feels really good is when I can, if not before we come on tour, write with an organization or while we're on tour, then I know names of people. I remember the songs in that town that were written. And if it's possible, I can even bring those people up on stage during our set so that 
they can tell their story. And then at the merch table time after the show, this happened once in um, Salina, Kansas. After the show, I watched a whole line of the community in Salina line up to tell this woman who was in an abusive relationship. We wrote a song together and people were walking up to her, giving her praise. And to me, that is a connection that will continue on. They don't, Mm. I don't need to be there for that. They don't need my music. They heard her story. And I provided the opportunity for her to have the privilege of having the mic, you know? So that's what I want to see is how can I create these moments of connection in the town um, that I'm in? How can I encourage venues to seek out those in their communities that they might not cater to who can't afford a $50 ticket, who can't afford a $25 ticket to a show, right? But if I come in and write with them and then bring them into that venue, put them on the stage to tell their story, not only have I formed formed a deeper connection with that community, but now the venue has a deeper connection. And the people in the community that didn't even know that venue existed know that that is a place that they, Mm. they belong. Let me preface this uh, next question by saying I am a liberal white lady. I'm mm-hmm. the one everyone's talking about. <laughs> um, I have thought about how audiences are at Folk and Roots concerts. They are pretty white. Uh, Folk and Roots concerts are predominantly white spaces. Lizzie No, who is my co-conspirator on Basic Folk, she was just in town playing mm-hmm. a show with Allison Russell. Mm-hmm. And Allie had a full band of women of different ethnicities on stage. 95% of the audience was white. Yeah. So in learning about how you are now touring, it makes me wonder your thoughts on how to make this music a space for everyone. Yeah. It's exactly what um, what Allison is doing. Is I've, we, I wrote this song kind of, based around what I see Allison and Yola doing and what I've conversations I've had both with, with the two of them and, and even with Margot Price and how, when you have a Dia Victoria as well, when you are given an opportunity, you climb that ladder. It is then like I, how I'm giving the microphone over to those in the community during my sets. It's the same idea of Allison is always bringing other artists that are artists in their own right. She has them performing alongside her mm-hmm. to share the mic and give them the spotlight. And it's, uh, you know, the song that we wrote is called Rise the Tide, which is what I see the musical community doing is, you know, rising tides lifts all ships. So I see when one of us goes high, we bring the other others along with us. So we all experience that wave together. And I tour with Nikki and Maureen. All of us are plus size women. And y'all need to get comfortable seeing big girls on stage. You need to get comfortable seeing women over the age of 40 out here touring like road dogs, you know, and and two black women and a plus size woman from up, you know, from from Cape Cod have something to say. And and if even though I don't have a band to um, per se right now in this moment, this iteration of Kashana, my way of diversifying the stages is when I come into town and I write with the community and then I bring mm-hmm. people into the rooms. I'm trying to also diversify the audiences by, you know, my management group and I, we're even reaching out to organizations and saying, um, hey, here's a, you know, the, we want to give these organizations, put them on our guest list, you know, so we're giving them free tickets to the show because they might not have been able to, they might not have been able to afford tickets to the show. So why don't we put them on a guest list, diversify the audience a little bit and, you know, when I come to write with them, I'm bringing them into that space, putting them on the stage, giving them the microphone to speak. Man, I love you. <laughs> I'm very chatty, Kathy, this morning, I so I'm just glad you <laughs> love you. <laughs> um, before we go, will you do the lightning round? Ooh, okay. Let's go. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Uh, let me call you sunshine. What is your karaoke song? Oh, oh goodness. What's my karaoke song? Um, oh, living on a prayer by Bon Jovi. Mm. Beautiful. (laughs) Dogs or cats or something else? Cats. Wow. I'm shocked. What is your coffee order? Black with honey. Shocked again. I'm going to have to try that. (laughs) 
<laughs> Who is your first celebrity crush? Tevin Campbell. Wah, wah. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Oh, there's so many. That's a rude. Oh, I can't do that. That question the is rude. <laughs> oh, uh, who's the nicest musician I've ever met? All of them. All my friends. How about that? Okay. Okay. <laughs> first album you bought with your own money. Oh, uh, TLC's, um, TLC's record. Was it Shock That Monkey? No. Their very first album, but it was a cassette tape. <laughs> oh, still counts. <laughs> Flying or invisibility? Invisibility. Seems like we'll have a very interesting follow-up interview just based on that one lightning round question. <laughs> um, okay, this is the last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? If you could see the movie that's playing in my mind right now. <laughs> There's so many sceneries going by. Oh, the most beautiful place? There's two. Sorry. There's, um, I drove through Sedona mm -hmm. out in Arizona. That is amazing. The air smells different. And then Ireland. I believe in fairies after being there. There is magic oh, there in that soil. Yeah. yeah. Ireland and Sedona. Yeah. We'll accept that. Kashana, thank you so much. This is really wonderful getting to talk to you. You're like so impressive and you're also hilarious and fun. And I really enjoyed talking. I, I enjoyed it. What can thank I say? You. I loved it. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me. I appreciate it. While I'm sitting here in the car sweating. <laughs> this episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Focus on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can also search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. You can go to our website, basicfolk.com, or wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.